Hello, welcome to Gunfighter Cast, episode number 113 with Aaron Cowan. How you doing, Aaron? I'm doing pretty good up yourself. I'm not bad at all, man. Thanks for coming on. Really excited about this show right here because we had an event happen yesterday. It's something that, that you teach people about, and I do as well. So uh, I'm anticipating a really good conversation here. And, you know, where I teach a lot more civilians on this side, you teach a lot of law enforcement, basically how to respond to almost this same exact type of event. And we're going to start talking about that right away, right after this little quick message. This episode of Gunfighter Cast is brought to you by Bravo Concealment Holsters. Use our coupon code GUNFIGHTER at checkout when you visit bravoconcealment.com and get 10% off your entire purchase. Aaron, the OSU event, the active killer, uh, which is why I use the term active killer for my active killer defense program, because they're not always firearms. It's not always an active shooter. This was a spree killer, a guy trying to hurt a lot of people using a tactic that we've seen in other countries and the U.S. quite a bit lately, but they've often been not considered by the media or the government as terrorist acts, but we can speculate that they are. Used a vehicle, got out, started stabbing, hacking people. And then was there was a little interdiction there, and he was stopped by bullets to the face. What stands out to you about this from the very beginning when you first start study or studying this and, and reading what happened? Well, just looking at the, the event as it occurred, uh, it was a single officer who stopped the uh, the active killer. And to me, I just kind of shrug and say, "Well, yeah, that's what happens. That's what almost always happens." Uh, for law enforcement training, your active shooter response traditionally. And, of course, this goes all the way back to Columbine, 1999. They realized the SWAT thing just wasn't going to work anymore because lives were being lost as the SWAT team was setting up. They had their emergency entry plan, working on their, their deliberate entry plan, trying to establish communications for, uh, for negotiations. Um, that applies to certain situations. It doesn't apply to an active shooter. So law enforcement began training in active shooter response. And uh, one of the more prominent systems, the alert system, teaches a team base where, you know, two, three, four, five officers are intended to link up and work in a loose formation or, or a number of different formations to make entry and close with and stop the bad guy. The biggest problem with that program has always been that it, it's numbers dependent and it presupposes that all these cops are going to arrive at the same side of the building at the same time to be able to make entry together. And what, one thing you definitely don't want is for an officer training in team-based response but not having the option to use a single officer response. Because if you have an officer show up on, say, there's a shooting at a mall or a stabbing at a mall, and he shows up in the food court, he's like, well, I don't have anybody else, so I need to tactically loiter and wait for two or three other officers before I can then make entry and stop this guy. In law enforcement, we do almost everything else, at inception at least, by ourselves, traffic stops, uh, field contacts, interviews, like all of these things are done as a single officer backup dependent if you, if you have it. If your police department has the numbers, then, then maybe a team-based response is feasible, but the majority of departments uh, outside of your large urban areas, which is a considerable amount of towns, they're just not going to have personnel to facilitate a team-based response. So a single officer response program is, is uh, that's what I focus if I were paraphrasing, you would say, train your team-based response. That's great. But you're far more likely for a single officer, and we need to train that if we're actually training for you know the worst-case scenario. Uh, because it's not just the worst case, but it's really the most likely based on the historical data. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, and the thing about it is, is it's not like super-secret ninja techniques. It's basic, sound concepts and principles of, of uh, dwelling navigation and being able to work with uh, 
the confines in which the situation is going to take place. It's not asking an officer to unduly uh, risk their lives. However, officer safety is as much mitigation of risk as you can do. It's not removal of it. So when I was going through the LERP program, their instructor program, I remember asking, uh, what about single officer response? Um, and the instructor looked at me like I was crazy. He's like, no, we wouldn't recommend that at all. Now, fast forward uh, almost eight years, and they now offer a single officer response. So apparently they came to the same conclusion that I had back then, is that it's just not feasible for the majority of law enforcement outside of urban areas to, to, to use the team-based system. So these skills need to be introduced to the officers, but then you face the administrative side of things where departments are hesitant to allow an officer to act against an active uh, killer by themselves. One of the interesting things that, that is often overlooked in training when I talk to law enforcement officers and teams and agencies is they're always assuming or often assuming that, that they've got this great amount of intelligence going on, that there is, in fact, an active killer on the premises and that's what this event is, is an active killer. They often don't have that foreknowledge. Uh, it may look like an, a robbery in progress or an intruder on campus, or uh, it could be a number of different things. Uh, I didn't tell you the information that I have, and you may have it by now. I don't know, but uh, I teach every year at the Ohio Tactical Officers Association, and I'm really close to a lot of officers up in Ohio. Actually, the, the young man who smoked the bad guy was trained by a friend of mine and spent a lot of time with him. Uh, I'm being told that he attributes his life right now and the lives of others around him and him acting the way he did to training from 88 Tactical and training by, you know, the friends of mine who spend a lot of time. Uh, OSU goes through a lot of training, gets a lot of training. Their officers, man, they're they're really proud of that. This paid off, this training and, and the uh, all the work that they put into these guys on that campus. This officer was responding to a traffic accident. He had no idea that there was an active murderer on the scene trying to hurt people. He knew he was responding to a traffic accident. He was close. He responded. He dissected the scene, processed what was happening, gave command, and shot the guy. I'm not sure on distances to target how much of a crowd. I'm told that there was a crowd still around. That, that was It was dispersing. They were trying to run away. But I, I don't have all those details. I'm hoping there's some video out pretty soon. I haven't been able to find anything. And I was Googling right before this video, uh, right before this, uh, this podcast. But I haven't seen anything yet. But he fired six shots. The officer did. He got all six shots impacted. One was a graze skipped off the ground and hit some an innocent person in the foot. But the other five shots was three to the torso and two to the head and, and stopped the guy very, very quickly. The, the amount of information an officer is going to have is directly related to the nature of the call that comes in and how far he is from the scene. So, again, going back to your semi-rural departments that may not have in-vehicle computer terminals, they're relying on everything radio. Uh, they're getting information from the dispatcher. The dispatcher is talking to someone on the phone and relaying information as, as they're able to do so. Um, so if the officer is a minute away, he may not have even close to a, a full picture of what exactly he's responding to. Uh, a lot of your active shooting events historically have come in as uh, um, uh, reports of some kind of violent disturbance, but there weren't any clear facts. Now, the term active shooter is super useful because... Everybody knows what it means. We've become desensitized to the term. Um, I still use it because the colloquial definition remains the same, and it's instantly identifiable. Everybody knows what we're talking about when we say that. So now, when someone calls 911 and screams there's an active shooter, then we have a better chance of the officers that are initially going to be on scene of formulating a more clear response. More correct response. Training. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, they're going to bring the correct amount of violence they need to stop that shooter versus 
showing up to a traffic accident and realizing, okay, this situation is, is not what it was supposed to be. Now I have a guy with a knife and I have to engage him. Like you're not going to be so far behind the, the power curve. You're going to be able to formulate your plan at least a little bit better uh, while responding. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of different things there because if, you, if you know the building, if you know the area, the layout, you know, your approach and uh, a lot of things can come into that if we have that much information. So to train only as if we're always going to know that we're responding to a definite active shooter is it's just not reality based. You know, it's just, uh, so I, I'm, I'm with you. I, I yeah, you know, I, I would rather have me and, and my buddies with armor and rifles going into a building after an active shooter that's probably armed with a rifle. But, you know, I, I may not have all that information. I may not have that time available. Every second that goes by, that's another shot being fired. Another person that could be hurt based on, you know, just my own assessment and, you know, the historical information, much more likely for a, an individual officer to respond. That tells me that we should put a lot of time and effort into training for that individual officer response. And that's something you do. Can you tell me about that class that, that you teach officers? Well, the class uh, began uh, shortly after Fort Hood. Uh, Fort Hood occurred and I was working for the Department of Defense at the time as a training officer. And they tasked me and other trainers with developing a program to teach to DOD civilian police and military police for active shooter response. Now, I don't know what happened on the MP side because apparently it became very convoluted and, and watered down. But on the, on the DOD side, the civilian side, the program was actually adopted by other, other government agencies as well. So we, had that, we created the team basis. Um, drawing heavily from um, past best practices as well as the alert system and some other uh, some other good experience from other officers. But my obviously initial complaint was okay. Where I was, my my concern was um, I had uh, 38 sworn officers, a a, jur- a main jurisdictional patrol area of 38,000 acres, uh, and then an MOU with the county around that area. To where we were most likely, there was a high school right off our installation. So we'd be most likely the closest unit if a call came in. Uh, just timing backup responses. Uh, best case scenario, one of my officers calling for backup, his backup would be three to four minutes out. That's best case, just based on the patrol area. So I developed the single officer program. Uh, me and my training lieutenant uh, worked heavily uh, on creating a program with best, you know, good, really good constants and principles to give a single officer. Um, the skills he needs to close with and stop an active shooter or active killer uh, with the lack of backup or other officers based on team-based response. So it was kind of a hard sell because DOD is very, very conservative when they're adopting new new, uh, uh, new policies and, and, and new training regimens. But I just basically did the research and said, look, 7 out of 10 active shooters have been stopped by a single officer or a single individual. There is no formal documentation of the team-based system ever being used against an active shooter. The only one that's touted really is the uh, trolley mall shooting in Utah. Mm-hmm. You remember that? So they, they they talk about how that was a team-based response until you factor in that it was three officers from three different departments who all, up until they cornered the dude in the pottery barn, didn't technically know the other officers were there or where they were. They knew that there were other officers in the mall, but they didn't have their exact location. They didn't meet up. They didn't form. But there was no team-based response. It was three individual officers closing with this guy at the same time. Um, and now San Bernardino is one of those situations where people say, well, what about that? And I was like, well, that was they were, they were stopped at a secondary crime scene by SWAT. So you can't really use that as an example either. Going all the way back, one of my best examples is uh, Fairchild Air Force Base back in 1994. Uh, an 
airman by the name of Andrew Brown. He was a military police for the Air Force. He rode his bike half a mile to what came in as, uh, I believe the call came in as a noise, uh, some kind of noise complaint at the, uh, the hospital annex there at Fairchild. And on his arrival, he was a bike cop, so he pedaled half a mile to this scene. A uh, uh, scumbag by the name of Dean Melbourne came running out of the hospital annex with a Mac 90. Uh, noticed Airman Brown and just opened up on him. And uh, Airman Brown actually put him down with a 210-foot 210, 210 shot with a Beretta M9. Fired, I believe he fired four rounds. He got two hits, one in the shoulder, one in the head. And uh, that's always, you know, impressed me for a number of reasons. Because at the time, and this comes from, you know, Andrew himself and then other people I know who were in the Air Force at the time. They said the, the, the handgun training. It's still probably pretty bad, but it was notoriously lacking back then. He took it upon himself to read all the caliber press books, take classes, do things to better himself as, as a law enforcement officer. So if in the event that in the event came in which it did, he was able to stop the shooter. But you can look at almost any recent active shooter, active killer event and see how it was stopped by law enforcement. There were some some that have been stopped by law enforcement, like the Mayan, the Mayan theater shooting in Texas a few years ago. Uh, that guy came in with the intent of killing as many people as he could, and he just happened to run into an off-duty officer, and he was stopped before he killed anybody. But that one doesn't qualify as an active shooter because I believe the government's definition is there has to be three or more categories. Right, our data skewed because we when, when they're stopped early, they don't reach that whatever the ratings are to make something an active shooter. When you talked about Andy Brown, he just published a book recently uh, called Warnings Unheeded, and he sent it to me. And I'm about 50 pages in, and he describes the whole incident there early on. And the book, uh, I'm not going to speculate because I haven't read it all yet. Uh, I'm reading the book, and then Andy's going to come on the show in the next couple of episodes, Gunfighter Cast, and, and talk about his book and talk about the event at Fairchild. But you know, from where I'm at right now in the book, he deals a lot more with uh, the things that went wrong before it happened. Basically, everybody ignored this, and whenever the shooting happened, everybody who knew who worked in that medical building – they didn't have to be told who the shooter was. They all knew because they, they knew it was this, this, yeah. this, that same guy because of the past experiences and the way he acted and anger problems and some other things. There was a lot of warnings unheeded, which is a, a very fitting title for the book. And he took some, man, 75 yards. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. Masada Ayub writes the foreword for that book. I forget the exact term that he uses. It was something like magical marksmanship or, or something like to that effect. Pretty pretty impressive. Looking forward to having Andy on the show here really soon, talking about his book and talking about that event. But that is another perfect example of a, a single officer response under stress after pedaling. He describes pedaling like crazy on that bicycle or bicycle fighting through uh, uh, a crowd of people that are all running away. And he was communicating with them, asking them where the bad guy was. And there's a lot of small little pieces in that, even the early parts of the book, that uh, are some things that I find that I teach that it just in here in him say and describe how his actions and how it actually worked in his scenario it always helps me to see that that what I'm doing is is accurate and there's more things behind it you know than is and same things you do yeah. I've witnessed part of your active shooter defense for the armed citizen class and you teach that thing a lot our communication for uh for in that environment finding the shooter uh but also the good guy talk I preach very hard anytime you have a gun out in a public environment you better have good guy talk coming out of your mouth since we're on that subject, what do you teach these officers? And you don't have to go in as much, just go in as much detail as you feel comfortable with. Because the majority of the show, there's a lot of law enforcement officers listen to the show, but there's a lot of more armed citizens who listen to the show. And people, when I'm teaching classes to citizens, and then you teach armed citizens as well as you do law enforcement, what are you teaching the law enforcement officers to do or recommending when the presence of an armed citizen 
is there and they could possibly be an asset? The biggest complication with that topic uh, generally has to be where's the nexus of it? When is this officer going to encounter? Now, if it's an active shooter response, then then if the citizen's acting in defense of others, uh, we have to make sure we don't have a blue-on-blue event. Uh, and that's something I teach on the citizen side is, is how to identify yourself to law enforcement. The biggest concern from the citizen side is, well, I don't want the cops to shoot me. Chances are you will be done working by the time law enforcement gets there. However, there is some, you know, some pretty safe things that you can do. And, and you know, identifying yourself blue on blue, blue on blue uh, is going to, because that's how we train law enforcement, so they don't shoot each other. Um, there's, there's no clear picture of a law enforcement officer shooting a CCW in a situation like that. But there have been situations where law enforcement has shot off-duty or, or undercover law enforcement or plainclothes law enforcement. Uh, so that's always going to be my biggest concern at the outset is, okay, identify yourselves um, in a way that each person can instantly recognize. And then as far as the officers go, like, if you haven't stopped the shooter yet, that CCW just became an asset. You have to trust in the fact that if he's there and he's willing to assist, then he has at least hopefully the skill set. And definitely, obviously, he's already displaying the mental fortitude to be an asset to you. So you can't go in there with the, the law enforcement superiority complex and be like, okay, well, I'm here now, so I don't need you. You may need him. And barring backup, which could be 10, 15, 20 minutes away, or you know, maybe even 30 to 60 seconds. Like A lot of people can die mm-hmm. in 30 to 60 seconds. You have one more major room or one more major obstacle to overcome to engage the shooter, and you have a CCW right there who's willing to assist you, formulate a 10-second plan and do work. I see absolutely no reason that the law enforcement officer can't depend on the CCW in a situation like that, especially as seeing some of the guys that or a lot of the guys, a lot of the guys and girls that come through my classes, um, they're on par or better than as far as at the inception level shooting. See the same thing. Uh, And in some cases, they're better because they're they're having to they look at it from a different mindset. They're not waiting for their department to provide them with training. They're not waiting for their department to provide them with ammunition because they don't have a department. So they're buying that stuff on their own. They budget for it. They shoot, they practice more, they dry fire more. Um, They're taking it way more seriously in some regards. And of course that's not across the board, but in my experiences with the students that I see that that's definitely uh, more likely than less likely. You know, I I think of it as me not being a law enforcement officer, but seeing violence and understanding it and doing the things that I've done in my life. If I were involved in a situation it depends, you know, um, it depends on, I'm going to look at things like, I can tell if a guy's trained or untrained by how they're handling the weapon in the first half a second. And if, if the, the way they're handling the weapon doesn't look like a person I want with me in a gunfight, I, I might get, I'm, I might give them another task. Hey, get these people out here and cover their egress. Get these people out of this building. Do that. Start triage in this area in, or have these people do it. And you hold this avenue of approach. And if the bad guy comes in, smoke him. And then again, uh, he may go with me. Hey, we're going to go in here and hit this building. Uh, or hit this room. We're going to go in here and clear. We're going to go find this guy. I, I tell my, my students, you know, I, I need that good guy talk coming out of my mouth. Identify yourself as, as a, you know, a concealed carry holder and that you want to help and make sure you're, you're displaying a high level of proficiency in whatever way you're holding that gun, whatever you're doing. You're showing that you're safe and you're showing that, that you might know what you're doing. You don't have to give the guy a resume. A, a, a trained person will recognize training very, very quickly. Absolutely. One of the, one of the, I wouldn't say it's, it's a huge hurdle, but it definitely is a hurdle I, I overcome, uh, both in the law enforcement and on the citizen side when teaching uh, mainly the active shooter, active killer response, but I also see it in my home defense and some of my low-life classes. 
um, is is people getting used to the idea of maneuvering a firearm under around other people. Uh, most officers have maneuvered a firearm around other officers, you know, felony stops or, or building searches, burglary calls, stuff like that. But they those other officers have done the same thing too. So they're encountering a situation where all the people that they're working around with their rifle or with their handgun do not know the rules to which they're adhering to. So muzzling innocence uh, becomes a really, really big concern. Muzzle direction is one of those things that we keep arguing about in the shooting community for some strange reason, um, as if it can only be one or two different. It can only be one or two different directions. Whereas I've always taught you to point the gun in the safest direction possible at all times. I rewrote my safety rules. I have my own set of safety rules because I hate every safety rule I've ever 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 read. I believe they take power for themselves. It's a long story. It's a whole episode right there by itself, uh, which will happen one day. But my first rule is. Be relentlessly aware of your muzzle, ensuring it always remains pointed in the relative safest direction. So the direction is relative, uh, where my gun should be pointed. And, you know, I use three, well, really two ready positions and a transitional position. And, uh, you know, I'm teaching high compressed ready. You may use low ready. You may use a uh, tempo index. Depends on what the, it's, they're all problem solving tools. And that's, that's all it is. There's, it's not, uh, I do it because it looks cool, feels cool. High compress ready does not solve every single problem. Soul does not solve every problem. I, I've had teams and SWAT teams that just, they, they, they use position soul all the time. Like they were taught that and that's all they use. Uh, I use that more of as, as a transitional position, probably less than any of the other ones because I, I don't really consider it a, a ready position, ready position. Let's say I'm responding to a, uh, an elementary school shooting. Sewell is a horrible position around six-year-olds, right? It, and, and especially when we have down people or people on the ground hugging the ground because they have no cover and the absence of cover, they're just getting low. There's a, it's none of these positions are perfect and safe and solve every single problem. Uh, so I need to have a variety to maneuver the gun. And that's one of the things I would be looking at with someone helping me out in this event is, all right, how are they holding their gun? If it's in the holster, that's probably the safest place for it for everybody around you, but it's not lethal for the bad guy. I need to be lethal for him, but safe for everybody in my vicinity. And that's definitely a training thing. Oh, absolutely. Muzzle direction is one of those things that, that we, 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 unfortunately, and, and because there's just no way really, really way around it, we're, we are taught this really bad training scar, and that's muzzle direction on a range. Mm-hmm. You're on a line, so you're not comfortable pointing the gun to your left or your right. You have a berm, you know, is the always safe direction. And, and a lot of instructors historically have, have, have just beat muzzled down in people's heads. That's where Sewell came from. And even the older low ready position was more of a Sewell than it is a, a close chest compression. So sometimes you have to take people and put them in a contextual situation to show them the way that they're pointing their gun is completely unsafe. Yep. But another thing that, that I've encountered with teaching law enforcement is, is uh, muzzling people, okay? I point my guns at two categories of people, unknowns and threats. Because an unknown gets muzzled until I decide if they're a threat or an innocent, because I'm not instantly going to know. It may only be for a quarter to, to half a second, or maybe I have to have a conversation with them first to determine whether or not, based on my best intuition and, and totality of the circumstances, if you will, if they are in fact a threat or, or some kind of additional actor or if they're uh, just somebody trying to get away from the situation and, and what I initially perceived as aggression was actually fear. So I have to be able to process through that and I have to teach officers like, hey, it's okay to point a gun in an unknown because if that unknown turns out to be a threat, you're in a much better position to act. If they turn out to be an unknown or turn out to be an innocent rather, then you immediately stop modeling them. It's that simple. But Departments maybe aren't 
teaching their officers, or I should say academies, really, aren't reinforcing the realities of that potential situation. They always want to put something into a very neat category. It's like, okay, innocence and threats. Well, unknowns is part of that. And you need to address that in, in teaching. And uh, I think it helps the officer out, not just for uh, responding to an active killer, but also just dealing with the general public at large in the event that a firearm has come out, especially in today's very anti-law enforcement social media-driven, world star, hip-hop, uh, <laughs> bad law enforcement trade, creatively edited videos um, society that we're in right now. It gives the officer an advantage that he wouldn't normally have if he'd been put in those neat little boxes of this is how you should always act no matter what the time is. Give me an example of how you, you put that in context for your armed citizens and your, your officers responding to an active shooter event where you, you likely have a crowd of people uh, maybe coming towards you, trying to get to an exit, that you're trying to get, you know, make an entry, communicating, uh, navigating that environment with verbiage and use of ready positions. Oh, I, I, I mean, I have a, a first-hand experience with something like this. I was I was uh, working down to a hallway where there was a there was a, a fight going on. There was a knife involved. Uh, we had that information going in. I was the first one who arrived. Uh, and I had all these people, they weren't really running because I guess people just don't run from knives the way that they run from guns. Anyway, I had these people kind of, I guess for lack of a better term, meandering down this hallway. They were leaving, but they weren't in a great hurry. There was a couple of quick hustles like that, you know, what people do in the crosswalk. Uh, but that was about it. And I was like, everybody, just everybody show me your hands, show me your hands, show me your hands. And there was, there was one guy who refused to put his hands up. And initially I thought he was refusing to put his hands up because he was concealing something in a, in a uh, underneath a sweatshirt. Because that's where his hands were. So I, instead of just kind of a lazy high compress, I immediately went to sights on him. And I was like, show me your hands, get your hands up, get your hands up. And he finally pulled his hands up and his entire demeanor changed. Like he, he just snapped out of some kind of like, I, I don't know, like he was like just his, he wasn't mentally processing the situation is what I think it was. And he was kind of in shock. And once I was able to snap him out of that, his pers- my perception of him changed from a potential threat to a completely innocent dude who was just completely scared out of his mind. But going into that, I had no way of knowing that until I actually communicated with him. You know, it was literally a brief uh, second in time where he went from potential threat and unknown to a completely innocent dude. At that point, I muzzled off of him and I was like, hey, go outside, rally up in the parking lot. Other officers are coming. When they get here, tell them where I'm headed. Uh, and we went from there. But... It's hard to replicate that in training unless you either have had the experience or you're willing to think outside of the traditional best case scenario box that a lot of people are trained with. You know, and that best scenario box, man, is what I I see all the time. Uh, I have a full frontal facing target. I've got this entire chest and I'm three to seven yards from it. And I'm super happy as long as I put my shots all somewhere in the torso area. That's only just a tiny little fraction of the piece of the puzzle. Absolutely. And that's why I've always felt force on force is the second half of the program, as long as it's it's done well. Uh, square range shooting, like there's just those inherent safety issues that we're always going to have to deal with because guns are inherently dangerous. Now, if you add force on force to your, your training plan, you know, take one of those classes for every other live fire class you take, you'll have a much better appreciation for the realities of engaging a three-dimensional moving threat who wants to hurt you probably as bad as you want to hurt him. It, it, it humbles you. It humbles your shooting ability and also refocuses where you're spending your time in practice to better uh, enhance your ability to be successful against a live human being. Because at the end of the day, like I'm a self-defense instructor, so I, everything I teach is for people. We use paper because it's a training medium, but I use three-dimensional targets just because people are three-dimensional. Uh, and 
I try to translate as much realism I can as well to my uh, my force on force classes because you can run those horribly too. I've been through some before where it felt more like a game than it did an actual training. Yeah, let me uh, let me ask you this. Let's say you you were one of those officers that you were teaching. Uh, you were, you were responding to an active shooter event, and you had one minute. You know you're going to go in. Uh, you know there's an armed citizen in there. Well, let's say you don't know there's an armed citizen in there, but you had if you had a minute to tell them, hey, I, what I want you to say, what I want you to do, so I can identify you as the good guy, and then what I I would expect you to do to to help you stay alive and keep me safe, and let's go stop this guy. What would you brief that that armed citizen on uh, if you had a minute to do that? Well, the first thing he needs to do is identify himself as a CCW, either verbally or with some kind of placard or sign or sash. There's products like that out there, but. The second thing he needs to do is immediately brief the officer responding on everything that he knows, everything he knows about the suspect, everything he knows about the number of wounded, everything he knows about the location or potential location of the threat. And then he needs to simply ask the question, do you want my help? Will, are you willing to accept my assistance? Because the officer can literally you know, tell him, like, hey, you need to leave. Or he may be like, you need to establish a safe zone. I want you to hold this door. I want you to hold this room, whatever the situation is. But for, for the citizen, it, it really is kind of simple, it, even though it's going to be a very traumatic situation, is just to explain, like, hey, identify yourself as a good guy. Give what, inf- inf- what pertinent information, the most reliable, most current information you have, and then ask if the officer wants your assistance, and then go with what he asks you to do. But we also have to accept the possibility that the citizen is better trained than the responding officer. That's entirely feasible. Yep. And... As an officer, you need to kind of have uh, a moment with yourself, a come-to-Jesus meeting, if you will. and Check the ego. Ask, yeah, check your ego and do not let your uh, your expert or your enthusiasm overcome, overcome your ability. If you recognize that this person, and everybody, even if they admit it, knows when someone's a better shooter than them. They know when someone's more dialed into a situation than they are. They know when someone's better at something than you may get that initial perception and be like, okay, if you're not a very good shooter and you haven't taken guns very seriously and the gun was just part of your job and you're just there for the paycheck and now you actually have to go do work and there's a citizen in there who's willing to help you, you should probably accept his help because chances are if he's it, just based on perception, you know, he could be a, a bud, but chances are if he's willing to, to, to go with you to do this, um, he's going to be an asset. And you need to recognize that this guy may be better at what you're about to do than you are. Good advice, man. Awesome. Where can folks find you so they can sign up for one of your, whether this is the law enforcement single officer response or your armed citizen response to active shooter? Yeah, I mean, just real quick, like I, I try to run as many uh, of both as I can. 2017, I'm going to try to run as many of the single officer response courses as I can. I got one so far in the schedule in Atlanta. I'm working on another one up in Tennessee. Uh, and then I'm going to try to get further out west as well. But uh, if you can't make it to the single officer response class, you can come to the citizens class. And obviously, I'm going to know your law enforcement and I will tailor your scenarios specifically for a law enforcement response. So you're still getting the same scenario based training. And a lot of the coursework is the same. Uh, the only difference is intent. Police officers do things slightly differently than a citizen will. And they have a little bit more uh, a little bit more to worry about as far as coordinating additional officers, medical and so on and so forth. So you, the content's not quite the same, but you're still going to get the same basic concepts and principles out of the course whether you right a lot of work in the structure a lot of the the fundamental fundamental stuff is, is the same but the kind of overshadowing context is definitely changed different for the uh the officer perspective the the only single officer response i have on the calendar right now is it is uh june 10th and 11th in atlanta 
but I will be adding more dates, uh, some earlier in the year and then some closer into the fall and winter. I'm going to try to get four in for 2017. Hopefully I'm able to do that. And of course, departments can contract contact me and I can do contract classes during the week or whenever whenever's good for them to run their officers or their trainers through it. Uh, and they can find pretty much everything you're doing in your entire schedule at sagedynamics.org? Yes. What about social media? Where, where can they find you? Follow uh, Sage Dynamics on that. Uh, I'm on the Instagram at Sage Dynamics. I'm on Twitter at Sage Dynamics. Uh, Sage Dynamics has a Facebook page. It's not super active just because, I mean, it's Facebook and it doesn't work for me as well as it works for some others. I'm most active on Twitter and the, uh, the Instagram. And I think that's pretty much it, except for YouTube, uh, youtube.com backslash Sage Dynamics. Or if you just do a search Sage Dynamics, you'll find the channel. And I do two videos a week. Yeah, Aaron's always putting out some good video content, uh, not just some BS flashy kind of stuff, but usually some very content-heavy, thought-provoking uh, discussions and, and things that he's showing and talking about it to get the wheels turning, get you thinking, get you evaluating what you're doing, uh, maybe what you should be doing. Always, uh, I, I subscribe to, to Aaron's YouTube channel and you know watch his new videos when he puts them out, and he's always putting out new stuff, so definitely go check that out and subscribe. Aaron, thanks for joining us on Gunfighter Cast. Really, really good discussion. I think it's a lot of good information in there for our armed citizens out there and the law enforcement officers. It's, it's always a pleasure. Looking forward to seeing you here in a couple of months when we get out there to SHOT Show, and uh, hopefully we'll talk again there because I'm planning on doing some interviews out there. I know you got a, a new product that you're – getting ready to go forward with and uh i want to tell everybody about that too maybe we can do that here in the future yeah Daniel here. Thank you so much for being a part of Gunfighter Cast and a listener of the show. If you feel that you get something out of Gunfighter Cast and you enjoy the show, why not pledge a dollar or two dollars through our Patreon site? Basically, you pledge one or two bucks an episode when uh, some content is released at the end of that month your card will get charged. Pretty simple and easy way to support the show when you're getting content. If not, all good. You're going to keep getting them for free. Thanks again for listening and being a part of the show. Gunfighter Cast out.